So we're in Acts chapter 8. And tonight, you know, it, we're going to do a lot of basic doctrine. It's a pretty tough doctrinal passage. It's a pretty controversial, it's a pretty difficult passage to kind of understand. Um, and it's sometimes in the New Testament and Old Testament, but we're focused on the New Testament, there are passages that are kind of anomalies. They're, they're different. And they go against what we normally teach or think, and they're there, and you've got to figure out what to do with them. That passage today, we're going to be in it. Now, there's a couple of ways you can approach passages. You can take a passage like this, which is a narrative. A narrative means it's giving an account of something that happened. You can look at those passages, and they're different than other things you see in the New Testament. Oftentimes, the teaching passages of Christ or the written things that come from uh, Paul or Peter where they're writing stuff out, John, and kind of to churches and giving instruction, which oftentimes those are in a context. So you have to be careful with when you are in the epistles and understand the context because sometimes the context that they're in is so different than our context that they're giving instructions and we try to follow it completely and that's difficult to do and it can be problematic. So you've got to understand these things. And a narrative passage like we're going to be in, which is different than most of the New Testament, you've got one or two choices. You can take the narrative passage as being normative and using it as the baseline of what you do, and then you've got to kind of explain away everything else. Or you can understand that it's different and do the very difficult task of explaining it in light of everything else. And you're going to see that as we come here in chapter 8. We saw last week that uh, as Philip came to Samaria, that people began to be converted and believe. Now, Samaria, as I said, we shared with you before, kind of last week, it is an area just kind of between Judea and Galilee. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, and most of you don't have other Bibles anymore, you have digital, but it's there. It was the area that in time was settled or populated by kind of a mixed breed of people who had come from the Jews and from the displaced people from the kingdom or empire of the Assyrians in the 8th century, in the 8th and 7th century, you kind of put them there, B.C., and these people kind of emerged. And so the Jews looked at them as outcasts, but they adopted a fundamental belief or worship of the God of the Jews, Yahweh. There were some differences, but it was this huge clash of cultures. These were not pagans. They didn't worship pagan idols or gods or goddesses. They worshiped God. It wasn't quite the same. In John chapter 4, you see an encounter between Jesus and a woman of Samaria called the woman at the well. I'm actually in February preaching two messages from what happens in John chapter 4. Because of this, there was natural animosity. Now, in Acts 1.8, when Jesus is about to leave, he says, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to start in Jerusalem, and that's good. And Judea, you know, then you're going to go, before you get to the rest of the world, you've got to go to Samaria first. And Samaria is kind of that place that begins to kind of kick everything off. Now, as we shared, you know, after the, the, the stoning of Stephen, the, the believers in Jerusalem that had come from other areas that were Jewish Christians, they scattered and went back to their different areas. They would begin to kind of initialize the chain of the gospel, but mostly among Jews. But here in Samaria, for the first time, we see a group of people who are not Jewish, a group who are not Jewish, become believers. 
And it causes some concern. And so we pick up in chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem, that's, you know, the, the 11 main guys that are left, you can add, you know, Matthias and maybe James, the brother of Jesus, that's maybe a little too early for him. But when those guys heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. And now, John is the one who at one time, along with his brother James, had asked that Jesus, if he wanted, they wanted, uh, he wanted them to call lightning down to destroy all the Samaritans. So here, uh, he's going back there. And so they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that is the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So here, here's the deal. They had heard about Jesus and we know they believed and then they received believer's baptism, which is the next step. However, it says they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So when Peter and John got there and realized that, they laid their hands on them. They didn't rebaptize them. They didn't preach the gospel per se to them. They set them aside by laying hands on them. They received then the Holy Spirit and something in the signs that went with it that demonstrated the receiving of the Spirit. Now, here's the problem. For them, there was a distinction and a separation from the moment of conversion and the receiving of the Holy Spirit of God. That is not normative in the Christian experience. Peter in Acts chapter 2, and I, when I preached back in the summer, which six months ago, when I preached about this on this passage, and one of the things that Peter said is that you will become followers of Jesus and immediately receive the Holy Spirit. It is the sign, the normative sign of your salvation experience is the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're inseparable. They teach that. Paul teaches that in Romans. I mean, Paul teaches that in numerous places. It is the fundamental teaching of our Christian faith that our salvation comes from the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we oftentimes teach, and when I teach about the Holy Spirit, and I try to give a summation, I'll say this. In the life of the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit does two things. Convicts them of their sin and convinces them they need Jesus. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. And then at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit does two other things. He cleanses you of your sin, and he saves you by his indwelling power. In other words, you receive him at the moment of conversion. Once you're saved, he does two other things in your life. He gives you guidance, and he gives you spiritual gifts. Now, that is a crude, simplistic way of explaining the work of the Holy Spirit that I have found is the easiest way to understand it. Here you have something different you have a group of people who, by all indications of the text, in both the context and the Greek language we translate into English, received salvation and were baptized. That's normative. But they did not receive the Holy Spirit until later when Peter and John came. So how do you explain this? And so we're going to talk about this for a little bit. It's a kind of a fairly deep doctrinal thing, but it's important because it is oftentimes misunderstood. There are two groups of people 
that say, or two groups within the Christianity that says that from this passage, we understand that the normative thing to experience is a two-part salvation where you are saved and then you are receiving the Holy Spirit later. The two groups are at complete opposite ends of so many other things and the way they understand this. Roman Catholics and Pentecostals. Roman Catholics teach that you are saved by baptism. That's why they baptize babies. Pedo-baptism. And then they teach that later on at a moment of confirmation by the laying on of the hands of the bishops or the priests, however they do all that, you receive confirmation of your salvation and of the Spirit. Roman Catholics believe that grace is dispensed through the work of the priesthood. That the priests who stand in line of the bishops, who stand in the line of the apostles because Peter was the first bishop of Rome in their teaching, that through that succession to the apostles, they have the right to dispense grace, specifically in this case, that of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals, on the other hand, teach that you receive salvation and then at a later date you receive the Holy Spirit through whatever process, oftentimes giving of laying on of hands. Some, but not all charismatics believe that the evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit is gifts. So both of these groups teach you are saved, whatever the version of salvation is, separate from the receiving of the Holy Spirit. This passage becomes normative for them. Therefore, they have to explain away all of the many other passages that clearly teach the opposite of this. Now, that is problematic. It's hugely problematic for them. They don't seem to have a problem with it, but you know, I would just say it leads to having to deny fundamental teachings of both Peter and John, and I might say, I mean, of, G- and of Peter and Paul, and of Jesus, though Jesus didn't systematize it or explain it in the clear terms because that wasn't what he was doing that Peter and Paul did. So probably it is best to reject their understanding. Another view that is held is that either the moment they received Christ and were baptized, they had Jesus, and that the giving of the Holy Spirit was not the giving of the Holy Spirit, but an affirmation that they had already received the Holy Spirit and with accompanying gifts, or they weren't really saved, and then they were saved. So it's what that group does, and some say this, they weren't really saved. They had a head knowledge about Jesus. They had begun a process, a journey of belief. But it was not till Peter and John arrived that they actually received salvation and then received the Holy Spirit. The problem with this view is that it is clear that they were saved. That Philip baptized him. Philip would not make such a huge mistake. Peter and John were impressed with the fact that they were saved, but acknowledged they hadn't yet received salvation. So that's probably not 
very good explanation. Now, the second explanation of this of these kind of view, that they had been saved and they had received the Holy Spirit, that but Peter and John came and made them aware of that, that is probably a little bit closer to what I might be comfortable with. A lot of people within the Reformed life teach that. In other words, they had received the Holy Spirit, they weren't aware of it, Peter and John made them aware of it. However, that's not what the text says. The text says they laid their hands on them and they received it. So the best explanation is the one that I have known and grown up with and does the best justice to this text, both in terms of the Greek language and the context, is that they received the Holy Spirit separate from salvation. This was an anomaly. And the reason for this is here. These were Samaritans. They were not accepted into Jewish world. In other words, the Jews did not accept their version of Judaism. Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 4. He says, y'all worship differently than us. It's not the same. It is different. It's kind of like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> One of these things just isn't the same. So in order to be sure and to be absolutely certain as Christianity begins in its infancy and you have this different culture, this different group of people who are normally rejected now receive Christ, they came and in a unique event, that had to do with the uniqueness of the situation. They received the Holy Spirit after salvation as a demonstrable proof, as the evidence for them and for everyone else that they had truly received the Spirit and were truly followers of Jesus. This explanation is the best explanation in light of the clear teachings of the rest of the New Testament and in light of what happens contextually in Acts chapter 8. Does it make me a little uncomfortable sometimes? Yeah. Because I've got to explain to people, why can't he do this at some other time? Why not when other groups come to faith, blah, 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 would they do that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Why don't you ask Jesus when you see him, if you see him? All right, now I'm not so sure you will. You know, so but the reason is, this was a completely unique and different culture that had identified with the worship of God, but had run counterfeit to some degree from what was acceptable to the Jewish practice. What we see today when we go to other cultures is they're coming from cultures that have no connection to the Christian faith. I hope that makes sense to you. If you have questions, my suggestion to you is to write those questions down, ponder them, and then be satisfied that I'm not going to probably answer them the way you want. <laughs> so do you kind of understand? Does anybody not understand that? Or at least, does it, does my, I don't usually like responses, but okay, this is your chance to respond. Everybody got that? Any questions? You know, uncertain? Good. I think I did a pretty good job explaining. I'm pretty, I'm just want to, I just want to reflect for a moment that, man, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> now, here's what happens. Something unique happens. Okay, you got that. Now, remember last week, we saw this cat named Simon get saved. He had been a magician. 
he had supposedly come to salvation. Now, let me just say this. In this anomaly, since we have this unique experience, let's just keep having a unique experience. One of the things that I found over the years, and one of the things that I've begun to understand, is it is not uncommon for people to give the appearance of having a faith relationship with Jesus, but not really have it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. He's, the author is warning people who came from a Jewish background, who have either become followers of Christ or thinking about it, but now are wavering, thinking to go back to Judaism for a variety of reasons. He says, if you abandon Jesus, you have nothing left. And he talks about people who have tasted the gift, who have somehow experienced the Holy Spirit, but have walked away or who have fallen away. Some think it speaks, and there again, people who come from certain backgrounds, this is kind of an anomaly, think that means you can lose your salvation. Even though clearly in the balance of the New Testament, Jesus himself teaches you can't lose your salvation. Others think that it's hypothetical, but they don't do hypotheticals. The best explanation is to understand that this is someone who has encountered Jesus in so many ways through a church setting or a personal setting of other people who has seen, acknowledged, agrees, and understands, but yet has not fully embraced Christ and therefore turns away. This is similar, I think, to what you see here. You're going to see a man who, by all appearances, got caught up in the moment of excitement and interaction of people coming to Jesus. A man who was sold out in opposition to God through witchcraft and sorcery. And while some might come to faith, and he gives the appearance of coming to faith, behind doing that was an ulterior motive. There was a desire on his part to identify with Christianity to receive the benefits of identifying with Christianity and Christ, but to not make the commitment that was necessary of full repentance and faith. I tend to want to give people the benefit of the doubt when they say they come to Christ, because I think that's better than always, you know, criticizing or being skeptical of everyone who doesn't think exactly the way I do. I have learned that while there is only one faith, in Jesus, our journey to Jesus can be different. I have a much more intellectual faith than I do an emotional faith. My wife had much more of an emotional faith than an intellectual faith. It's not to say she wasn't smart intellectual. I'm just saying that I processed my salvation much more logically than she did. She processed her salvation much more relationally. And so we, I understand that within those spectrums, people come from a lot of different backgrounds. And so we're always careful to try to understand their faith journey. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This is where we get the old archaic idea of simony, that, you know, selling out the faith for money, which most people never heard of. He said this, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So understand two things. There's a couple things he did, he did not grasp. One, 
He did not grasp that you don't give people the Holy Spirit. This is why it is clear that that's exactly what Peter and John did, which makes this an aberration. But that is not what normally happens. You don't give Spirit, Holy Spirit, and you don't give away spiritual gifts. I remember I was in uh, my church I grew up in when I was a youth. I grew up in a Baptist, Baptist church. And evidently, but there was a, a couple in that church who evidently said they could speak in tongues, which, you know, in a Baptist church, it's just, you just back in the 60s and 70s, you don't do that. Even now, you know, you tell me you speak in tongues. I said, that's fine. You do it here. That ain't going to ever be fine. I don't care what you think the Holy Spirit's telling you. You ain't going to do that here. Um, that actually, I think, happened <laughs> at the women's conference a few, about two months ago. We had some guests here. And I think one of them was doing that, and uh, Joe and I weren't here. Leanne was here. Leanne calls Joe, and Joe has a heart attack because I'm sitting next to him. And uh, Michael was here, I think, to end it. But we, we don't do that. And there are some, though, who believe that what, what happened is they began talking about they could give, and they were, in a, they were in a Bible study, that they could give people in the Bible study that gift so they could lay their hands on them and give them the ability to speak in tongues. Like, I'm, I'm in high school. And I'm like, you can't do that. That is, that is not scriptural. I mean, anybody knows that. That is the most unbiblical thing I can think of. The idea that you can give someone else a spiritual gift or disposition that belongs only to the Holy Spirit is categorically wrong. And here's part of that. That's what Simon wants. So his first mistake was in thinking that he could give the Holy Spirit or anything connected to the Holy Spirit to other people. We don't have power over God. That's what that would mean. The second thing is that you can do that with money. And here you have the beginning of televangelism and the prosperity gospel right here. You know, <laughs> he's like the first, give me your money. I'll make all this happen. I know that's kind of tacky, but I'm fortunately at an age where I don't care. <laughs> Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Basically, this is what he says. May you and your money rot in hell. That's, that's what that means. May you all perish together because you thought you could obtain with money things of God. How early in the life of the church did money begin to be a problem? Remember in, in, in chapter 5 with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a problem with the money. And now here, here you have another aspect of money, money, money. I'll give you money, you give me something. By the way, Even to this day, there are a lot of people who want to buy off whatever with money. One of the things, you know, one of the things I learned a long time ago, and I'm, I'm just saying this is me, and, and over the years, I've had a lot of people offer me things, and I've, all, and I've pretty much always turned them down because I don't ever want to owe them or want people to think I owe them. If you ever, so I appreciate, I get offered stuff all the time, and I, and I really thank you. I get offered to go stay in your lake homes, your mountain homes, your this, your that, and I always am very polite and say thank you, and I will never, ever, ever do it. Because the minute I do what I owe you. You may not think that. Someone else will think that. Now, I mean, it's one thing for us to go out to eat. That's fine. That's not the same thing. But when people who have stuff 
offer me their stuff that the average person don't have. Because anybody can offer me a meal. Uh, but when people do that, that borderlines to me, not only this, that's not, saying, that's not saying that's what they're trying to do, but I have to be careful that the appearance of that never occurs. I'm not saying you do, you're not doing that, I get I get offered stuff all the time, and I know they're not doing that. But I don't want someone else to think they're doing that, or that I can ever be bought. It is an important thing, because you know, this is what I know. I have seen in my lifetime too many guys be bought. And then it's time for you to have to make a tough decision. And if you don't make it, it looks like you got bought. That's just me. I don't care what anybody else does. I just say, I'm a senior pastor. It's different from me. All right? So I don't do that. And, and I'm just saying a large part of that goes back to this fundamental principle that I see here. To not give the appearance that anyone has ever curried favor because of what they have offered me from their life. My wife says sometimes, I sure wish you wouldn't do that. He says, you have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart, I love this, is not right with God. Your heart is not right with God. How many? What did Paul say? It's the love of money. It's the root of all evil. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't want stuff. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Peter basically is just saying, your heart is in the wrong place. It's hard to, it's hard to serve Jesus and money. Now, I love money. I do. It buys, it, it buys nice stuff. And you, you pay me a really good salary, and I appreciate it. And probably right in the middle of our next building campaign, I'm probably going to ask you to give me a whole lot more money so I can finish that campaign. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Some of you are just now getting that. Right? All right, that's a pretty good strategy. Yes, I've learned that. But you can't pursue treasure in Jesus. You can have treasure. But you can't pursue it. Therefore, repent of this, notice what he says, wickedness of yours. And pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He's not saying God can't forgive you. He's saying, though, the intent of your heart may not be forgiven because you may not be able to change. You may not be able to seek it. This is a strong admonition. You need to seek repentance. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Notice what he's saying. Right, but verse 23 says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. He's not saying, pray for me so I may receive forgiveness. He's saying, pray that I don't receive the judgment. Simon never prayed for forgiveness. Simon prayed that I may not receive judgment. It's two different prayers. I'm not saying, I'm not, I, yeah, I don't think this guy's a believer. Normally I give the, you know, I give the benefit of the doubt. But this, Peter has seen into his soul that there's something wrong. And Simon confirms there's something wrong. Because he doesn't 
see the wrongfulness of his actions. He just doesn't want the consequences of his actions. He's got a few minutes left. There are a lot of people in life who come in contact with Jesus. They know he's the Lord. They love Christmas. They love Easter. They love church, give money. They do all those things. But in the end, they can never admit the sinfulness of their life. They turn to Jesus, not for forgiveness and cleansing. They turn to Jesus seeking that they not be punished for their sins. And turning to Jesus so you will not be punished for your sins is not the same thing as asking the forgiveness of your sins. Because if there's one thing that I as a sinner understand is I deserve the punishment of my sins. And if I were by chance to receive some type of punishment for my sin, I would know that it was well deserved and that I had earned it. So have you. Our desire is like the psalmist says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit in me, but create in me a clean heart. Forgive me for my sin. He missed that part. And so, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, primarily Peter and John. And as they were going along, they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they just went and started preaching the gospel. This is a unique passage set in the middle of the book of Acts. And if you're not careful, you just read right on over it. But it's got critical stuff in it. Stuff that is doctrinally so important that it can change your entire view of salvation in the Christian faith. What I've given you is the best and correct understanding according to the text, the context, and the balance of Scripture. If you go in one of those other directions, you get out of whack. And you've got more problems in your theology and in your faith and in your church than you really want to have. So, that's it. I'll see you Sunday, I hope.